Well, it's good to be back and um, thankful to be here, particularly with this passage. You know, when we were, um, when our kids were young, we had this board game called Stare. I don't know if it's a maddening game, really, but it's, it's a game that you look at a picture and uh, it may have a theme to it, like a jungle or like a, a boatyard, and it's filled with these details that you have 30 seconds to stare at and try to remember all that you can. And then you have to put it down and, of course, figure out how many things can you remember of what you just stared. And it's a, it's a fun game, but it's a maddening game because you know what you just looked at, and sometimes you can't remember what you just saw. I, I determined after 50 I would never play that game. <laughs> but, but before I was 50, it was, it was a fun game but a maddening game. But we as people, just part of our being is that we are forgetful, that we don't remember well. And this is why I'm so thankful for Matthew. He's taking great labor to, to remind us of things, these truths of Jesus Christ that he wants to hold up for us. Remember, Matthew's goal is to declare Jesus as the king of the world, king of the entire world. And he's been displaying his character and his glory and his beauty. And we're going to see that again in chapter 15 of Matthew. We're going to see this idea between two miracles. So this passage really has two sections. There's the summary miracles. There's a bunch of miracles that are going to be declared and, and displayed. And then there's going to be the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15, 29. And what he's going to do is he's going to show us, again, he's going to remind us because we forget that Jesus is the global Savior and King. In other words, Jesus is the King of the world. That's what he's coming for. This isn't a regional deity here. This is a global, a cosmic King. But he's also compassionate. He's, he's compassionate and gentle to us. We're going to see that. And he's also satisfying. He's sufficient for everything we need, even the things that we don't understand that we need. He's sufficient. So what Matthew wants to do is he wants to hold them up and show that Jesus is the gravitational center of God's plan, and everything is going to be taken up and done in and through him. And so I want to hold Jesus to you. I want, us to, I want, to, be, I want to have Christ revealed to us so that we remember, and then we're going to respond to that revelation. Remember, a miracle story is always declaring something about Jesus, and then we respond to that which has been revealed by God. So let's read in Matthew 15, and I'll read 29 to 39. And I want you, as I go through it, think of those themes. This global king, a compassionate king, and then a sufficient king for everything we need. It says in 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. You've heard that before, Matthew 5. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away, hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? 
They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. After sending them, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So we have, I know it's a similar story, and I'll explain why, but the, the reality of it is this shows first. I want you to see, and this is a little more theological, so I want you to hang with me on this one. But I think it shows us a clear picture of Jesus as a global king, a global savior. And I want to show you how I think that's true in these miracles. When you look at 29 to 31, you see these, this just summary of, of miracles and healings that he does. He goes, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, goes up to the mountain, sits down, and the crowds come to him. I'm sure they're the same crowds that he's going to be feeding in just a few days. So if you look at those crowds, there's 4,000 men, let's say a wife, a couple children, what do you have, 16,000? Let's just say twelve to 20,000. In other words, it's a big crowd. And they're not coming alone, they're coming with all their problems. I mean, the lame... I mean, the crippled, the blind, the mute, the deaf. I mean, can you imagine the sea of just brokenness before Jesus? And it says that they put him at his feet. Or that, that little word is they cast him down is what they did. They just gave him to Jesus. We've got nothing to offer these people. And, and all these people, can you imagine the thousands? I mean, just the glut of people. And what do we find? Matthew, the master of understatement, and he healed them. Thousands, and he healed them. This is like the greatest hospital, and he healed them. And that's all he says. I mean, the lame are now getting up and walking. The blind that have never seen, they're now seeing. They couldn't distinguish between blue and red. Now they can. I mean, can you imagine how they wondered? I mean, this is an incredible testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. But what I think is remarkable, and you've seen these summaries of healings before, just at the end of 14. What's unique about this is he's doing it among the Gentiles. He's doing it among the Gentiles. Remember how in 1521 he withdrew from the crowd after the confrontation with the Pharisees, went up to Tyre and Sidon and dealt with the Canaanite woman. But then in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, it says he went down to Decapolis. That's on the Gentile, it's a Gentile territory on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And so this miracle is being, is being done among the Gentiles. As he ministered to Israel, the covenant people, so now he's going outside. Just as he said to the Canaanite woman that his primary earthly ministry was to the Jews, we see there's a bigger plan of God. And Jesus is beginning to unveil it now. And he's beginning to work among the Gentiles. You even see it when they said, they wondered and they glorified the God of Israel. Why does he say it that way? Because they had their own gods. But now they see that the God of Israel has sent this Jesus to be the Messiah. He's the king of the nations. So through the power displayed, they see that the God of Israel, this is what Israel, the nation, was to do all along. Jesus is the true Israel coming now and displaying the glory of God through his ministry. This is very important. This is a, a seminal moment in the redemptive history where the plan of God is breaking out now into the nations. That Jesus is the hope of all the nations. But we see this in the uh, feeding of the 4,000. So 
you notice the similarities with the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14. That's led a lot of scholars and a lot of people to think, well, it's the same miracle. They just, editorial mistake, missed it, put it in again, didn't even do a very good job because they couldn't get the details right. And people think it's the same miracle. Well, I don't think that flies. There are a number of reasons why. Number one, both Matthew and Mark have both miracle feeding stories. They have the five and the 4,000. But there are too many differences here. The differences between the two stories are, of course, you know, in the first feeding, they were with them one day. Here they're with them three days. You know, it was 5,000 men, 4,000 men. You see that they brought five loaves and two fish in the first feeding, seven loaves and a few fish in the second. The leftovers, there were, there were 12 baskets. And the word for baskets, the smaller cylinder basket, but here there's seven baskets. It's the bigger basket, the kind that, that Paul was lowered in over the city wall to escape. So it's a bigger basket. You see that in the first, they were told to sit in the grass, and here they're told to sit on the ground, meaning probably a change in season. But what settles it for me is what Jesus says in the very next chapter, in chapter 16. He says this, he says, to the, you know, we're going to be looking at the Pharisees and the um, disciples next week and their reaction to Jesus. But he says, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So Jesus is recognizing that those two miracles were separate. So why do I go to all this effort right now to explain to you about the Gentile healings and the Gentile feedings? Well, I think it's very significant, as I said. I think it's, a, it's a, a mark in redemptive history where Jesus is now being declared as the God of the nations. He's taking the gospel out. He's doing the same works of grace now among the Gentiles that he did among the Jewish nation. These messianic blessings that were promised are now going forth to all people. I, I think this has been Matthew's point really all along. If you remember back in chapter 2, when Jesus was born, who came to worship him? The first group. It was these magi, these wise men, these leaders from the east. They were Gentiles. The nations were coming to worship Jesus Christ. And you saw it again in, in Matthew chapter 8 when he heals the Canaanite or the um, centurion servant. If you remember that servant, the centurion, that's a Roman officer, 100 soldiers, he had a servant, sick, he goes to Jesus, asks for healing, and Jesus said, I'll go back with you. And the centurion said, no, you don't have to. I, I'm a man under authority. I understand it. You can just pronounce healing. And Jesus marveled at his faith. I think Jesus was marveling at his faith, not just because he believed that Jesus could heal, but also Jesus could heal from a distance, but that Jesus would heal a Gentile. So you see this going out. You saw it last week, well, really with Nick in preaching in chapter 15. Do you remember his argument about this elimination of the dietary laws? The dietary laws were to separate Israel from the nations by the way they ate. But Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of a man, thereby eliminating the distinctions, thereby drawing Jew and Gentile together all under Christ. You saw it last week when, when Luke preached on the Canaanite woman. So I think there's something great going on here that the gospel is going beyond the house, beyond the lost sheep of Israel to the nations. He's laying the groundwork for the work that's going to be carried on by the apostles. In other words, this is why we 
who are Gentiles believe. The word's gone out. Last week we were with believers in Ecuador. Why do they believe? How did the gospel get there? Well, Jesus promised it. He is a savior for the nations. It's the promise of Genesis 12 that through the seed of Abraham, the nations will be blessed. We have been blessed. Do you realize that? We are Gentiles. We were outside the covenant. We were outside all that God was doing through Israel. We're on the outside. We once were not a people. We were far away. But now we've been drawn near. Are you thankful for that? Do you think about that? I mean, we've known it in our life, but, but when you go back to this, you realize, I was not part of a covenant. He drew me in. He was compassionate to me. I was not looking for him. He looked, sought, and found, and saved me. I mean, we, we want to be grateful when we think about this. The, the God has a heart for the nations, and he's given his son to redeem them and to draw all things back to him. Let us rejoice over that. I mean, let us rejoice the fact that we know these things and we shouldn't know them. So he's, he's, a, he's a God, he's a savior of the nations. He's a, a global king. But look with me too that he's a compassionate king. Look back in 29 to 31. As you see these people that are brought to him and they're the crippled, the mute, and, and, and the, the lame and the blind. I mean, can you imagine the variety of illnesses that he is confronting? And it says that they brought them to Jesus. Now, this was going on for a few days because Jesus said, before feeding them, he said, they've been with me three days. So Jesus was ministering to this crowd for three long days. I mean, just imagine that for a minute. The thousands coming before you, and he's ministering to them with compassion. Now, you know, Jesus could have said, be healed. He could have just proclaimed a mass healing if he wanted to. Right? I mean, he did that with the bread in the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to see he did it again with the feeding of the four. He could, it just instantaneously happened. It didn't take him three days to feed everybody. It just produced by his will. He could have healed everybody. Why didn't he? Why would he take three days? I think this is where you see the compassion of Jesus Christ. I think he wanted to be with them. They were placed at his feet. I think he wanted to hear them and touch them and look at them. I I think he's compassionate far more than we give him credit for. I think he wanted to deal with the people because he's a compassionate Savior. He doesn't do things from a distance. You know, we're a little different. So when you come off 540 and you get on some exit, six forks, and you hit the light, and there's the guy with the, the, the board that says homeless, what do you do? You usually pick up your iPhone, maybe, and make the call that you could have made before, but, but you now feel uncomfortable, and so you're going to take the time to do it now, or play with the radio station, or look to the right. We don't like looking at human misery. It, it is, makes us uncomfortable. We feel guilty. We don't know what to do with that. And yet Jesus, can you imagine what they told him? All the people streaming before him. This hurts, and that's a problem. And they just went through a litany, and he just listens to them, and he looks at them. You know, people that are in wheelchairs will tell you people won't look at their faces. They look above them. They won't look at them. Makes us feel uncomfortable. Yet Jesus looks at them and heals them. He's compassionate. He's gracious. How about the feeding of 5,000? 
Can you imagine that? He doesn't want them to go away hungry. Here's what he says. I have compassion on them. I am unwilling that they go away. They may faint on the way. He knows their condition. The, the, the disciples weren't concerned about their condition, but he was. And this is a unique passage here because Jesus gives a self-disclosure of his own person. You don't see this in Scripture much, but he is describing himself to us. I have compassion. And his compassion is meted out by having them sit down in groups, and then he begins to feed them. He begins to satisfy them. They are made full. So you see the compassion in the healings. You see the compassion in the feeding. I want to warn us here because, you know, many of us have a very high view of God's sovereignty, and I never want that to change. Uh, We understand God's sovereignty. He has a plan for this world. He has a plan for this church. He has a plan for our lives, and that hell itself won't be able to stop it, that the circumstances of men won't be able to stop it, in many ways, we won't be able to stop it. God has a plan, and that for us is bedrock. But sometimes the sovereignty of God can come off feeling like a machine that just grinds through life, and it's going to happen regardless of what stands in front of it. But that's not the case. I want to challenge us that while we hold up a high view of God's sovereignty, it's in the context of a compassionate and a merciful God. His compassions never fail, he promises us Lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. <clears throat> May I challenge you, if, if you think God often seems cold or distant, or you're in sin and you're afraid to approach him, or you feel like you've asked him too many times, or the needs are overwhelming to you, do you see the compassion here in our Savior? I mean, would you go to him? I mean, reminding yourself of his mercy and his compassion is beyond tracing out. It's unrivaled. And yet we still hesitate. Can I, can I plead with you? Look at this. Read it over and over. Familiarize yourself. Grow comfortable with the softness of Jesus towards his people. And, and don't shy from coming to him. Run to him. I mean, like they were throwing these, things, these people and these problems at Jesus. Could we do the same? See, he's a compassionate He's, he's a global king, he's a compassionate king, but then I also see him as a satisfying, a sufficient king for us. Again, look at these, these healings, the summary of healings in 29 to 31. I mean, you see the lame and the blind, and they come to him and he heals them. He satisfies them is what he does. They're satisfied him. Can you imagine if you've never been able to walk? And then he pronounces healing. And you stand up and walk. Would you be satisfied? Would you find his work and his greatness to be satisfied? I mean, if, you, if you've never heard, if you were deaf, and you never heard your mother say, I love you, and then you're healed, and she says, I love you, can you imagine how satisfied you'd be? Or, or if you couldn't speak, think of the bottled up nature that you'd, you'd have, and then to have your tongue loosed, and you could say, I love you, thank you. I mean, can you imagine the satisfaction that they would have had in Jesus for his healing? It would have been incredible. I, 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 I cannot even, and I did, I tried to sit at my desk, and I said, imagine this, I've never been blind, I've never been deaf, and I'm trying, God help me to imagine 
the satisfaction that they would have in you. And these are just physical healings. Or, or the feeding. He takes the, the few loaves and the fish and he lifts them up and gives thanks to the Father. And then, boom, food's created. You remember, it isn't the wheat and the water and the yeast that were given. It didn't take three days. It just happened. I mean, the power. And, and then, everybody knows what, this, what a full stomach feels like. You know what, well, you know what an empty stomach feels like because your stomach's barking at you to feed it. And it's only four hours, and I want to eat something. And yet there are days on limited resources as they're staying with Jesus. And then he feeds them. This wasn't a psychological filling, like I feel warm inside. He fed them. There's a satisfaction when you push away from a table and you've had a good meal. Remember this picture of satisfaction. This isn't like us going to Santa, sitting at his feet, asking him for something that we may hope to get later. You're standing you're sitting at the feet of the creator of the world who can satisfy us. So, so you can imagine the satisfaction. Now, there's more here I want you to see. It's not simply Jesus knew that feeding them, they would be hungry again. Jesus knew even in healing a sickness that they'd be sick again. Jesus knew that. These symptoms of hunger and disease and blindness, and they're all pointing to the fact that we have a greater problem. You know, J.C. Ryle said these words. He says, let us not forget that we are far more diseased in our souls than in our bodies. We have a far greater problem with God than the physical ailments we have. Remember, this was missed by the, by the men who were fed in the Gospel of John at the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, they were fed, and, and, and then they came back the next day and they asked for more bread. So let's say Jesus performed that miracle on Tuesday. Well, Wednesday, they're hungry again. Hey, we've got to go back, and let's go to that guy that made the bread and get more bread. And Jesus says, don't labor for that which perishes. Don't labor for that which is temporal. What Jesus is saying here, there's something more going on. See, these miracles are signs pointing to a greater satisfaction that he's going to give us. You know, why doesn't, why doesn't God do more miracles now? Remember, God never intended to deal with the human condition through miracles. He intended to deal with the human condition through the gospel. And, 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 and these, these miracles were just signs pointing to something greater. Our problems are greater than the physical issues, and our needs are greater than feeding and healing. Jesus is pointing to that satisfaction that he would ultimately bring through redemption, through his own death on the cross and resurrection. He was was pointing to something greater. He was pointing to a life with Christ where there would be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Uh, that, That there would be a satisfaction in Christ that would be forever. There'd never be the hunger. There'd never be the sickness. See, Jesus didn't come He didn't come to make us healthy or happy. He came to make us glad worshipers of God. He he came to make us celebrate God, to to change us, to reconcile us. It shouldn't be surprising to you that the language used at the breaking of the bread, at the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, is the same language used at the Last Supper. It was a pointer, clearly. I mean, when they celebrated the Last Supper, they remembered these miracles. 
And it was at that last supper where Jesus broke, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is my blood shed for you. In other words, this is where satisfaction will come. By Jesus Christ coming perfectly in the flesh, taking upon himself our sin, our brokenness, our failures, and bearing the full wrath of God. Listen, God's wrath exploded on Christ, and he bore it for us so that we could be reconciled to God, that we could be adopted and given full rights of son. That's satisfying. I am now reconciled to God. You're now reconciled to God. No physical ailment, no hunger pain can change that dynamic, and that is forever. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need those things. Don't even give consideration to him. Seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is eternal. It's glorious. And he's come to establish it through his own death and through his own resurrection. He's the king of this kingdom. This is incredibly revealing to us about Christ, that he's the global king, he's a compassionate king, And he's a sufficient king. He's a satisfying king. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm thankful that you're here. I'm very thankful. And you may be wondering about these things. I would ask you, this is the Jesus of the Bible. You know, most non-Christians that I speak with reject a Jesus that's a caricature of this. You know, a caricature is very dangerous because it bears similarities, but it's not the same thing. This Jesus has come as king to save with compassion and with power. And this king has come and said that those who are heavy burdened and laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus, in fact, says this in in, uh, John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a satisfaction for you by faith in Jesus Christ. And I I beg you to consider these things. For the Christian here, though, how do you respond to this? Well, next week we're going to look at the responses in chapter 16 because you'll notice in 16 you have the rejection of the Pharisees, you have the kind of confusion and bewilderment of the disciples, and then you have the magisterial passage of Peter, of Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? And then Jesus is going to again reveal himself in glorious fashion. But for us, when we look at these miracles and the feeding, what do we do with this? So let let me challenge you. If you're a Christian here, I want to challenge you in five areas. I want you to think about. And what I'm asking for you to do is is not simply do you understand this. I, I pray that God will give me the clarity that it will be understandable. But I want you to line yourself up with what I'm saying. Where are you? In your homes, in your workplaces, your personal self-understanding, where are you in relationship to these things? And I'm praying that then in the moments we have of silence following the service, that you can, if you're convicted by God's Spirit, that you'll repent. If you're broken and you're afflicted, that you'll seek Him for grace. But there'll be a time that we'll take these things and take them to the Lord and allow His Spirit to work in them through us. So the first thing I would say to you is that the Christian from this passage The Christian worships Jesus Christ as the only Son of God, full of glory and full of power. So what I mean to say is the Christian doesn't say he's a nice man, he's a good man, he's a good teacher, he's a moralist. We don't say that. We don't say he's a prophet. Islam says that. We don't say he's the greatest man that ever lived. Jesus already said that about John the Baptist. We say he's the Son of God. I mean, you see the display of his power here. 
I mean, he is healing people. You know the word for crippled? The crippled was made healthy, we're told. Okay, so the word for crippled actually can mean severed. So, so he could very much have been a person, perhaps a severed arm from a farming accident, or perhaps he was born with a deformed leg. They were healed. So a new arm grew. He didn't have an ear. An ear grew. Is that not within the power of Christ? I mean, this is the powerful display. Lame, walking, blind, seeing. Bread being made. It's a creation miracle. Ex, ex nihilo. Out of nothing, bread is being formed. And, and it's cooked. Smoked fish. Imagine delicious. He's doing it all. I, we, we need to think highly of Jesus' glory. We need to think, we, we need to meditate on his power and glory. Folks, we can be busied up 24-7 for the next week and never give due consideration to the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. And we will be the lesser for it. It will not affect his glory. It will affect our joy. It will affect our satisfaction. If you are overwhelmed right now, perhaps you need wisdom for a situation that you just don't have. You're dealing with a, a child that you just don't know what to do with. You have a marriage that is intractable. It's not moving anywhere but backwards then come to this Son of God and cast these things at his feet. Find your satisfaction in him. Don't go to the the pundits of the world first. Come to him. Seek his grace. God, help me. Give me wisdom. Give me strength. Give me power. Don't just wring your hands as if we have nowhere to go. We can come to his feet and ask for grace. So, First, the Christian is going to worship him as the Son of God. But secondly, the Christian's going to have a global orientation. You know, we as a people can be very parochial. We can be very narrow-minded. We get in our streams of thought. We get in our groups of people. We get in, in, in the people that we feel comfortable with. And we can have a very narrow focus on life. I think this text showing us that Jesus is the global king is saying, broaden your perspective on my world. He's a savior for the world. You know, our Christian faith, it's not a local faith, it's not a regional faith, it's not even a global faith, it's a cosmic faith. In other words, there's only one savior for the world. There isn't, when I hear Christians say, well, well Islam has Muhammad and Allah and, and the Jews have Yahweh of the Old Testament. We, no, that's not it. It's Jesus for the world. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved, and it's Jesus Christ. And and so we want to have a global orientation. We want to break forth with this compassion for others. Now, I am so thankful we have this Fox Road Elementary uh, service coming up this weekend, and Marissa's doing a great job leading it. I, I want to encourage you to get in on that. Do you realize there are 30 languages spoken at that school? See, we're in an unprecedented time. We don't have to go overseas anymore. I'm encouraging that we do. But the nations are coming to us. Or Sandy Forks, right over here around the corner, we've done ministry there. Twelve different people groups there. I mean, this is incredible that we have the opportunity to declare Christ, exercise compassion, by bringing them breakfast. We're simply displaying compassion. We're feeding them. We're feeding them. We don't even know them. Jesus fed them. He didn't even know them. It's a great ministry. I want to encourage you to challenge yourself. If you are stuck in a rut with only, you don't know anybody, then then by God's grace, go meet your neighbor or go to this Fox Road Elementary, but, but step out from where you are by faith. 
Okay, thirdly, the Christian knows that he tends to forget, and so he wants me to repeat things over and over to him. The Christian wants me to remind him. We look at the disciples, and one major scholarly objection to these miracles being uh, two different miracles is the fact they ask the same question, or virtually the same question, and and scholar would say, I, I can't believe this. And, and they can write off the whole gospel, by the way, with this objection in their minds. But they would say, I can't believe this. They're asking the same question. Where can we get enough bread? They just asked that less than 30 verses ago, and Jesus fulfilled all their, or filled all their bellies. Why would they ask it again if it wasn't the same miracle? I think there's something more going on here. I think he's really showing us the pattern of Jesus' kind of redemptive work in our life. It's just over and over and over again. We just need to be reminded. I mean, how many miracles did they see? How many times did he calm the storm and walk on the water and feed and heal and cleanse and, and free the demonized? It, he does it over and over, and they still don't get it. And before you throw the disciples under the bus, think about the Israelites, right? The Israelites walk through the Red Sea by God splitting it in half, and then they get to the other side, uh, Exodus 17, it's not long before they're saying they're thirsty. And you know what they're asking? Hey, where's the Lord? Isn't he among us anymore? I mean, what a bunch of ungrateful. I, but we would have done the same thing. You know, it, the, the sea was just parted, and all of a sudden we're grumbling because we're not having water. Where, isn't he among us anymore? They're asking. So we, we need to be reminded. We, we need these gracious reminders of what God has done in our lives. A New Testament scholar said this, he said, it is only the man of full-formed faith, this is something the apostles did not possess at this time, who argues from the past to the future and derives confidence from God's former dealings of faithfulness and love. Do you see what he's saying? That we want to be students of not just biblical history, but our own personal history. So we see the marks of God in our life we see his faithfulness. We see his compassions never fail. That becomes a basis of faith for the future. And now we go forward. Even though we don't know what's coming, it doesn't matter. He's already there. We already have the confidence that he can never leave us nor forsake us. So we want to be reminded of these things. We never want to tire of the beauty of the gospel. Okay, thirdly, oh, sorry, fourthly, uh, the Christian's going to continue in ministry. The, the Christian is going to engage in ministry. You see this here when he says to them, how many loaves do you have? First, he calls them to himself. Do you notice that? He says this. He says, um, now Jesus, in 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself. I love that. He's calling us to himself. And then he says, how many loaves do you have? In other words, he incorporates us into his plan. He employs us. He uses our gifts. Are you using the gifts that God has given to you for the extension of his name and the betterment of others, the exercising of compassion? Now, you know when they came up with seven loaves again, their resources are woefully inadequate for the task. That is not to be a problem for the Christian. Why? Because we're bringing them to Christ, and Christ has the power to multiply the gifts that we give. Remember, he takes bread and makes bread. So the gift that he has, he doesn't change what you give him into something different. He just multiplies, extends, empowers it. And so for us, I think he's calling us to attempt things that are beyond our natural reach so that we have to have faith. It presumes a faith in God. 
that we would go forward him and say, I'm going to try this. I'm terrified to do this. Perhaps it's even greeting a person you don't know. For some of us, that is really, really challenging. It's really intimidating to speak to somebody that you have no idea who they are. What am I going to say? What happens if they ask me a question? But then you're going to first, you're going to say, no, no, no. Jesus, if I just bring what I have to him, he's going to make it work. So I, I want to encourage you. What ministries are you in? Are you thriving in them? Are you enjoying? Are you stretching yourself by faith? Are you exercising compassion? Are you declaring the name? It's very, very intimidating to do a ministry of evangelism with neighbors or friends and co-workers. But again, you come back here, refresh yourself on the beauty and the power of Christ, and then go forth and do it by faith for his glory. And then the last thing I would say is the Christian has a future hope. Now, theologians use the term eschatology. It's last things. In other words, our view of the last things which is the satisfaction of Jesus, him reigning supreme, our view of that last day with Christ is to color and contour our lives today. We have to be a people who think about the last day. We have to be a people who think about the satisfaction we will have when you die. When you die, you'll be the most satisfied person in the world. You will be more satisfied than, than the most then whoever could be on this earth with all the gifts, the talents, the money, everything they have, you will be more satisfied because you're going to see him for who he is and you're going to become like him and relationships are going to be perfect. Your body's going to be made like his. You're going to see a new heavens and new earth. You're going to be fully satisfied because he's able to satisfy you in every way. We have to think about that day. Thinking about that day gives me power for this day. If I don't think about that day, then I'm going to live as this day is the only day. And, I want to, and, and Paul says this over and over. He says it in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. In Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or the Christians in Hebrews 10, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. Or Jesus says in Matthew 6, to store up treasures in heaven where rust and moth don't destroy. In other words, if we don't have a clear vision of the day, thinking about it, dwelling upon it, thinking about the... You know, nothing in life can fully satisfy you because you're image bearers. Only he can satisfy you. That's why Augustine, that famous line that my heart, my soul finds no rest until it finds rest in thee, he is all satisfying. So Jesus is a global king, compassionate king, and he is a sufficient king to satisfy you. So let's take a minute now and just in silence, line your lives up with what you've just heard. And perhaps it's going to lead you to a confession of sin. Perhaps it's going to lead you to thankfulness. God, thank you for doing what you've been doing in my life. But, but speak to the Lord quietly on this issue. And, uh, and then an elder is going to close us in prayer. Thank you.